There we go. So as Renee said, I'm Cassandra. I have a private practice out in Greeley, um, serving most of Northern Colorado now. And I have one other person within my group practice named Chandra. And our main goal is to focus on attachment, complex developmental trauma. Um, and those things tend to go hand in hand with foster care. So we do a lot with that. Um, we enjoy it very much. And the reason I like working with teens and specifically like training on teens is I find foster teens is one of our really misunderstood and more complex groups. And I get it. Teens are scary and they're mean. Um, <laughs> but if we give them a little bit of time, usually they can show us there's a lot more to them, um, which is also what I really love about teens. So today my focus primarily is just chatting about how we can build relationships with teenagers. Because if there's one thing I've learned from my work with them, it does not matter if I have my case conceptualization of them down pat. I know exactly what they need, what I need them to do, what their trauma is. None of that matters if they don't feel like they have a relationship with me. So I think that really is the key of fostering teens um, or anyone within that adolescent group, even the younger 11, 12 year olds, is just making sure that you have the capacity to build a relationship with them. Because I've also noticed once I have that, my teens that come to me, even though they only see me once a week, are incredibly compliant with me and they're willing to work really, really hard once they feel like I've been willing to work hard with them. Um, and I will guys try to monitor the chat here and there too. I'm not always great at it. <laughs> so Lindsay and Renee will interrupt me, but I just want to say before we even get started, I love it. If you guys communicate throughout, please don't feel like you have to hold questions till the end. I think foster source is a lot more, the training for foster source are a lot more beneficial if you guys can jump in, especially because I find you guys so often help each other if you ask questions throughout the training, because you guys are all a wealth of knowledge for each other too. So um, I will try and monitor it. And then I know Lindsay and Renee will as well, but we can get started. Um, maybe we can. One sec, guys. My With my screen share on, it's not letting me switch slides, which is super weird. So let me figure that out real quick. This, I mean, this is 2020 if I've ever heard, right? Like, right, that it doesn't want me to share my screen. 2020. <laughs> I know, we can just blame everything on that now, I guess. Wouldn't have expected anything less from 2020. Okay, let's see if you guys start from the beginning with me. That'll do it. There we go. Okay, great. So I actually asked my teen clients how adults should try to connect with them. My favorite response was don't. Um, <laughs> oh my laugh. gosh, that is hilarious. Isn't it? Just sassy, sassy 15 year old was don't. Um, you guys can kind of peruse these. Listen, don't talk. So another don't. Um, try not to give advice unless I ask for it. And I actually had a really good conversation. And this was a foster team that said this one. And I kind of asked him to explain it a little bit more, but he said that he feels like a lot of the advice that he's gotten from, whether it be foster parents or kinship or therapists or whatever, um, isn't necessarily applicable to him because he notices that people try to front load him with advice before they get to know him. Um, so to me, 
from my perspective, whether or not the advice was relevant at this point, this friend of mine, just, he just shuts down. If you try to immediate, immediately try to problem solve for him. And I think we all know that as adults too, is if we come to somebody that we love and we trust and we want to share something with them, that's difficult. If they immediately try to solve the problem, we feel really dismissed and shut down. So I thought that one was just really insightful for a teen within the system. Um, and then don't talk about what things were like when you were a teenager, unless it actually makes sense. Um, I thought that one was pretty funny too. And we explored that more. And what she was trying to say was she feels like a lot of placements that she's been in have no frame of reference for what her life was like. So let alone the age gap, it's just often not comparable. And she finds also that it was like really invalidating and dismissive if people just wanted to talk about where she was at. Um, and then we've got listen, really hear me. I don't really know. I just don't like it um, when they try too hard or it feels like an interview. And that was an elaboration on the first quote was don't be a try hard, which I don't know how many of you were familiar with that expression. I wasn't, but apparently a lot of us adults are tryhards, which means we put too much effort in. What I am going to work on today is teaching us how to subtly put effort in, in ways that are a little bit more covert and don't feel like they're under the spotlight for the teenager themselves. And then I really liked the last one, which was, let me come to you. And I put that one last because it really just captures the essence of a lot of what we're going to talk about today. But for me, I find the common thread in all of these answers to be that as adults, we need to listen more and talk less, which is hard. Okay, then we've got kind of our, our intro to everything we're going to go over. And what I'm going to kind of do on this side, everyone, is front load you with the premise for today. And then we're going to break it down and we're going to backfill. Um, because as with many things in the healing journey, it's going to sound really simple. The concept of so what we're talking about today is really conscious connection with teens. And I like to break it down from middle school to high school, which is why we've got our two little pictures here. I don't know if anyone else spent quarantine binge watching Euphoria, but I was pretty excited to slip those girls in there <laughs> when I was Google image searching and saw that group on the bottom. Um, but so if we start talking about middle schoolers, it is the time of transition. I don't know if any of you can think back on middle school, but you could not pay me to go back to my junior high school. There is just no way. And it's ironic. I'm actually doing this training for my parents' house to avoid my own children while I'm trying to speak. Um, but I'm pretty sure my mom, who is not that far away from me, would say the same thing, that you cannot pay her to send me back to middle school. And that is the most well-adjusted kid, right, that has a loving family system. Middle school is really, really hard. And what's really tricky, I find, with our trauma kids more than anything is that physiologically they are maturing and their hormones just start coming online and going kind of wild and so the way they look and in some ways biochemically feel does not match up with their emotional maturation and that goes 10 times over for our foster kids than it does for children that have not been in the system just because emotionally there's really big gaps for our kids that have complex developmental trauma and so when we think about the way that they look and what they think they're ready for there is this massive gap 
in those two things. And I think that is in essence, just the most difficult thing to parent within middle school. And so where we start connecting in middle school is this idea that we need to shift from a place of dominance to kinship, which sounds scary. But what I mean by that is once you are parenting an adolescent, you are no longer the one that gets to be dominant and in control or else you are cultivating rebellion. So we have to kind of take a step back and figure out how can we partner with this kid because they do not perceive themselves as young as they are, um, as emotionally regressed as we know they are. So we have to find a way to connect with them in a way that they feel akin to us and partnered with us while also respecting our authority. And this goes for biological parents of teens as well. So as with anything in foster care, it's just increased frequency of severity of the same thing that, you know, typical families might be dealing with. So I think the best way to really start in joining in kinship with these kids is thinking about what they're up against. Their first heartbreaks, you know, romantically, they've had a lot of heartbreak in foster care. So for them, they're dealing with a compounding of traumas that have already occurred. So in some ways, it's, better and worse, right? Because I find a lot of the times kids that suffer their first like rejection, first embarrassment, first heartbreak, especially my only children um, that I work with that deal with that in middle school, they really spiral. Our kids that we're talking about today are already so resilient to these things and they really avoid the sensation, but ultimately their body remembers that they felt rejection before. And so it can really compound the trauma and increase the behavior. So just keeping that in mind and then also think about they are for the first time navigating social politics. And we as adults, I don't think very many of us like that. <laughs> so it's something that sticks with us lifelong. And it is so hard to be introduced to cliques and, and do this, but don't do this. And if you wear this, the implication is this. And if you do your hair like this, then you're with this group and not this one. And it's just, it is so much. So what we want to do to find that partnership with our early adolescents is finding ways to remember what it was like without telling them we remember what it was like. Um, and then normalize it and validate what they're going through while also keeping them safe. So instead of when they come home and they express, oh, well, all the other kids have these genes or whatever it may be. And, you know, maybe they've lived with you for two weeks and they're mad at you because you haven't known to buy them these pants. Instead of leading with, oh, just be your own person or I didn't know or whatever it is. Hey, it's really hard to feel like you don't fit in. What can I do to help? And if you can't buy the jeans right then, that's okay. But at least you're starting to explore with them and acknowledge to them that, yeah, this is really hard. And it actually is a big deal that everybody else is wearing high-waisted jeans and you're wearing a mid-rise, you know, whatever it might be. That's one thing that I hear often right now is the high-rise to the mid-rise. But... <laughs> Cassiandra, if I do you feel like... I feel like teens right now are more in touch with their emotional health than we were. And mm -hmm. I think just, you know, we didn't talk a lot about mental health when we were kids. We were kind of taught to just brush it under the rug, you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Um, I was talking to my daughter is 12 and I was talking to her the other day and she was asking like in middle school, if you liked a boy, you know, what was it like? And I was saying, well, you passed a note through a messenger 
and you never ever talked to them directly, right? And even if you were quote unquote going together then, that just meant that you were going together. You never talked to them, you never looked at them, nothing. And mm -hmm. she was saying, you know, she she liked a boy in her class and she told him, I, I had feelings when, you know, and I, I think I like you. I mean, she just told him, I was so proud of her. But at the same time, I was like, yikes. Like that's <laughs> a, that's a deeper level of emotional health than I was pre prepared to help her through at 12. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that is really a great example of what Gen Z middle schoolers are like. I mean, I guess technically Gen Z is 14 to 25. Um, but just this new wave of adolescence. And that's why I think validation does go so much further with them because they're actually seeking it and can identify that that's what they're looking for. The, the flip side of is that as I have some more, um, cared for children, um, within private practice that will, are very quick to tell their parents they're emotionally abusive. <laughs> when they're not. Um, but so with that comes a generation that really is aware of what's going on around them. And that's why validation is just such a big deal for them because they really do know what it looks like and what it feels like. And I think even kids in foster care, even if they haven't been necessarily validated by a bio parent, they at least are somewhat aware of what they're missing. And I mean, it's so cool too. when we think about these teens that we're all working with right now is with social media, a lot of them are really plugged into like Instagram pages like mine and mental health stuff and they're reading it and they're sharing it and they want to have these really deep discussions, which is wonderful. So take that and run with it. Like if you have a team that you think has that capacity, do it. If you have a daughter like Renee's that has that emotional wellness and wants to share their feelings, run with it as soon as you can. And my biggest no always when I look at my other screen, when I think about middle schoolers is emotional whirlwind, which is like the yikes that Renee just described. And so when that comes up for you, making sure that you don't go into that anxiety and that, that yikes feeling and the scared with them, you can acknowledge like, Ooh, I got to regulate myself for a minute. Cause I just got nervous for you while you were telling me the story. Cause that shows them that you care. And especially with a lot of our foster teens, a big thing we're doing doing is trying to evoke empathy within them. So if you can just kind of narrate your own empathetic responses, that goes a lot further than being reactionary and swooping in trying to fix it to soothe your own anxiety, which leads us right into our high schoolers, kind of our older age group, um, which is this is where it's at its peak of seeing the effects of their upbringing. And that's really challenging in foster care. So for biological parents, a lot of the time you get to reap a lot of the rewards and see all these seeds that have been sown as you've raised your children and really start to partner with them. And not necessarily a friendship, but no different than the middle schoolers, a kinship and enjoy the autonomous human being that you've created. As foster parents, a lot of the time you're cleaning up the mess that you didn't make. And that's really, really hard when you take in a high schooler because a lot of the times they have put in positions where they can actually take care of themselves. Should they be taking care of themselves? No. Do they have the emotional capacity to do it? Absolutely not. But could they if they needed to? Yeah. And so that's what's really hard about fostering a high school student is just that idea that they are insanely independent. They have a lot of pseudo maturity. 
And then you're also up against this idea of you are seeing the person that whether it be the system or the biological family has created and you're not responsible for it, but you do have to engage in it and work to heal it. But the good news is you can heal. Teenage, teenage dumb is never too late to engage in the healing process whatsoever. Um, and another thing word that comes to mind for me always is just the idea of containment with high schoolers, not in containing them, which is a really important distinction, but working with them on their emotional containment and their ability to do things like leave school at school or talk about a friendship once or a fight once and then drop it so that they're not consistently looping. And foster kids typically don't have the capacity to do that. So you really have to be the model for what emotional containment looks like, what being aware of your thought processes looks like, and doing things like letting them vent, letting them vent, letting them vent, and go, okay, I think it's time for you to be able to let go of this now. Let's go for a walk so we can get rid of this. Let's watch your favorite TV show. Hey, do you want some time on your tablet? They will say yes, they want time on the tablet. Whatever it is, you know, go hang out in your room for a little bit, jam some music, get on your phone, maybe avoid some social media, um, but just make really light suggestions to them to try to practice that emotional containment and more importantly, modeling it. So coming home, maybe you're venting to your spouse or another adult in the house about your day, but you kind of peripherally know your teens listening or seeing it and then going, well, I got it off my chest and now it's time for me to leave work at work. And just really showing them what that looks like because they likely don't even have a framework for it quite yet. Um, Miss Sandra, yes. how, how can we, when it's, when a teen is looping, how mm -hmm. do we know to start helping or kind of nudging them towards containment? And how do we know that this is something that needs more time or processing? Yeah. So I always say venting versus emotional dumping. And that's usually my sign of a loop is when it doesn't feel like venting because, and this is good for us as adults to be aware of too. If you are venting and you feel yourself gradually climbing and getting more upset and more worked up, or you see your team getting more worked up as they tell the story and mad all over again, they're looping and they're emotionally dumping. They are not venting. And that's time when we go, Hey, I'm noticing that you're breathing really fast or your face looks really mad or I can tell in your voice that this is bothering you all over again. Let's walk it off. And I always suggest walks because from a regulatory standpoint, emotionally, that's our bilateral stimulation where we're moving side to side. We cross our midline of our body every time we walk and it makes our brain go from this to this so that we can really just work better. And I am a true believer when it comes to body keeping the score, that Bessel van der Kolk book, that we really do hold that stuff in our body. And if our body is tense and we're dysregulated and we are upset about something, we need to literally move through it so it doesn't get stuck. Um, I think sense. I saw a Q&A pop up. By the way, the book that Cassandra's referencing is called The Body Keeps the Score for anyone who's interested. Yes, we have a question. My teen and her siblings fired their therapist. The caseworker is allowing her to find her own as a quote unquote independent teen. Do you have recommended therapists for foster teens who take Medicaid? But I would say even before, of course, Medicaid for us is always the, the, the trigger, right? But let's take a step back and talk about what would a teen best look for? How, how is a teen going to know that a therapist is a good fit for them? You know, I find actually, and I think that's a really good backing up point, Renee. I find that typically with teens, um, 
they know what they're looking for. They know when they come in and meet me in the first five or 10 minutes, if they're going to keep me and they'll tell me, which sometimes is kind of a blow to your ego, by the way, but (laughs) they know. So I think your number one role is helping them narrow down their search because I see that your immediate reaction is like, okay, who would you recommend? But if they are supposed to be looking for this as an independent team, maybe teach them how to work psychology today. Um, goodtherapy.com or other search engines, things like that actually go to whatever Medicaid way they have. And so for instance, if they have Beacon versus ABC and looking up um, approved providers in the portal, and just maybe instead of thinking about that, steering them towards looking in the right places. And I think really it's so dependent on the person, no different than us as adults. What we look in therapists is going to be different based on that person. Um, I would make sure you encourage your team to book multiple appointments and interview multiple therapists. So I always tell people at least three, go meet with, or at least talk on the phone to three different providers, see what you like, see what you don't like. And then ultimately who you pick, you can go to them and say, by the way, I also did an intake here. And with them, I really liked that they did this. Can you do that too? Oh, and Renee just sent um, the Psychology Today listing where you can search therapists based on the type of insurance that you take. Um, And then on the Medicaid website, again, for your raise, you should be able to find it somewhere on there. Um, Ooh, and then there is something called Open Path Collective. I will type it in the chat right now. Open Path typically takes Medicaid or offers a private pay sliding scale. Um, So if you Google that, you should be able to find either Medicaid funded or low cost therapy for your teen and just really walking them through the search engines. And I think that's a good example of joining in kinship and partnership versus control is finding the guiding forces to get them to the right place and then letting them choose from there. Um. I'm reading a question really quick. Yeah, let me go ahead and read that. Um, Our teen actually has a bit of the opposite issue when it comes to a lot of the described behaviors so far. We've had him for nearly two years as a tween and now a teen, and we are working more on being able to accurately describe what we are feeling and or owning behaviors when we have broken the rules. He uses I don't know as his default for everything. Long description short, do you have any tips for supporting teens who have a difficult time expressing themselves? Mm-hmm. Um, sorry if I'm jumping ahead. Feel free to table later. Um, that's, I think that's a great, great question. Um, mm-hmm. how, what would you say to that, Cassandra? So I think that's a really good point. Um, I would say the stuff we were talking about with being really emotionally attuned for this new generation is probably less likely in the foster care population. Um, What you're describing is the more typical team that I work with. And I usually just reflect back things like, oh, you don't know. You seem to not know a lot. That makes it really hard for me to know what to do here and just get really honest. And my next point on this slide, I think goes really well with this, which was the idea of acceptance over control, because the bottom line is once they hit adolescence, we can't make them do things. Some teens have figured that out. Some have not. If you have one that has not good for you and it will be a lot easier to parent them. Um, However, if you do have one of the teens that has kind of figured out like you can't make me do anything. And if I just sit here and stonewall you and say, I don't know have fun. 
that's where you really need to partner with them and get really transparent and honest. So we're going to get into something called the concept of the setup. I would really tune in when we get to that piece, because I think that will really help what you're describing um, is something I would call hypo arousal versus hyper arousal. And that's kind of the two ways um, in a lot of bottom up approaches we in therapy, we categorize what we're working with. Um, and so with hypo arousal, I call them my floating heads where they just kind of pop off and disconnect from their body. And it's a lot of I don't knows and some of it's genuine disassociation um, and just kind of a release of really any accountability because they don't want any and they are intentionally setting you up to feel kind of lost in parenting them but we will get there I think we had one other Q&A no okay just getting three more oh that's the chat cool yeah okay and I think a lot of that disassociation is survival mode isn't it I think so. Yeah. I always say that I think that disassociation is the most brilliant coping skill that kids can come up with. Because when you think about what these kids have been through, fight, flight, or freeze are our option when we're being traumatized. When you're a child, you can't fight. You're not probably going to be very successful in flight. So you have to freeze. So disassociation is really what our brain does to protect us when it knows that we can't leave. So kids that are skilled in disassociation, although it's a hard habit to break, what I do, and part of that is from a modality called IFS, which is internal family systems, which is kind of just boring therapy jargon. But what I like to do is call it our parts. And so I like to really validate that disassociative part and say stuff like, hey, that's the part of you that protected you for a really long time. Maybe we could kind of sit with yourself and let that part of you know we don't need it right now. And a lot of the times I see a ton of progress when I can get an adult or a teenager to acknowledge disassociation just feels good. Like zoning out feels good. It's a nice break. And once we can kind of say, all right, maybe you need 10 minutes of disassociation a day, but let's not do it when your foster mom's talking to you. Well, I was going to say, it's like, ways. it's okay to disassociate. Mm-hmm. We as adults need those times when we check out as well. But yeah, we, we also get need to work on the hard stuff, right? Yes, absolutely. So exactly what Renee is saying, you all disassociate. None of you probably have a disassociative disorder, and I highly doubt you have disassociative identity disorder, which is like personality disorder, um, multiple personality disorder. And I think that's why when people hear disassociation, they get scared. But when you drive home and you're not cognizant of every stop sign and every light and every turn, you're disassociating. When you get really into a TV show, and you tune out your spouse talking to you or your child talking to you, you're disassociating. So it's not necessarily a super unhealthy thing. So again, it's just kind of learning to put bounds around when he does it and kind of opening a conversation with and making it kind of a joke. Like, I don't know, is not an option. We can make you a word bank if we need to, but I don't know, can't come out and I need you to stay present, but also maybe working with his therapist that you mentioned was really good on kind of like, um, we would call it limit setting, um, limit association setting and making sure that he's aware of like, okay, we're not telling you, you cannot do this anymore, but we do need you to be online sometimes so that I can partner with you and accept you more. Because really what we're talking about when we talk connecting with teens is drop the control, increase the acceptance and see how far you can get. Um, is there anything in the chat I need to touch on right now, Renee or Lindsay? Nope, you are good. We will interrupt you anytime there's anything okay. for you. Great. So now, this is I want to hear what you have to say about these social media <laughs> platforms. This is mostly a joke, if I'm being honest. Um, somewhat a joke, somewhat not. 
it's not really my clinical observation, guys, but in conversation with teens, Snapchat is cool. There is something called streaks. I don't know a ton about it, but I don't have Snapchat. Snapchat freaks me out. But apparently you take a picture of whatever and send it to as many people as humanly possible. And that takes up a lot of emotional um, and physical energy for a lot of the teenagers I see in a week. Instagram is cool. TikTok is great. Absolutely not Facebook. If you talk about Facebook, you are old and on your way to death is basically what I've been told over and over and over again. Facebook is out. Did I mention that all of you should be following us on Facebook if you're not already? (laughs) (laughs) By the way, a streak for those who don't know, a streak on Snapchat, I think is um, that you snap at least once a day with the same person for as long as you can as many days as possible you keep that streak going that's what a streak is Ooh, noted I guess so it's mostly girls that tell me about it and it sounds like they have group streaks where it's like there's 10 of them and they all send pictures back and forth like every day every minute of their life and some I have one girl that will stop session to streak really quick and then come back which we're working on it guys um oh no it's going way too fast there we go so Teens and social media, on a more serious note, um, we really can't talk about parenting teens if we don't talk about social media. And I put down at the bottom that Gen Z is 14 to 25. I don't think I totally realized that. Um, and it's kind of vindicating for me because I think that a lot of us um, millennials that are far over 25 um, get lumped in with some of the behaviors of the older Gen Z. So I just always think generational clusters are really funny that way. I don't think they have a name yet for under 14. Could be wrong, but basically while we're unpacking social media, the evidence-based stuff I could find that's not just my anecdotal anecdotal stuff from therapy um, is all on this age group. And I feel like it's really just imperative to review social media and really think about it critically because we all have perceptions of what it is and we all have biases around it. I guess there's a new documentary out called The Social Problem. I haven't watched it yet. It's on my list to do this weekend, but it explores a lot of the scarier things about social media, which I think is more common. So we're going to not just talk about the negative things with social media, but also the good for our teens. So here's a little graphic. It didn't blow up very well. But essentially, it was a self-report from teens on what they feel like is the most positive and the most negative effects of social media. And it's pretty much exactly what you thought it would be. Um, A lot of bullying for the negative, harms relationships and in-person contact, which I think is like the biggest complaint of old people like all of us is that they don't know how to talk to each other anymore. Um, My biggest concern therapeutically is down here the 15% of unrealistic views of each other's life. That's what I see as the most damaging of social media for teenagers, especially for foster teens, because I could not imagine if you're moving from home to home, but you get to keep your smartphone with you and you just see all these curated images of people with their families and matching pajamas and their perfect clean houses that they've lived in since they were little and all these types of things. Because even if other kids aren't necessarily posting those. If they go to their explore page as a foster kid, you're going to see at least two or three mom bloggers with their six kids and matching outfits in their custom home, all this kind of stuff. And it's hard for teens. It makes foster teens feel really ostracized and really left out. And then if we move up a little further, we've got this neutral area. 
And that is where most of Gen Z sat here is they really were like, it's good and bad, which honestly is kind of where I'm at. But the positive stuff is points of connection, easier to find news and information like that, meeting people with the same interests that don't necessarily go to their school, which I think that, again, the 15% one is really impactful for our foster kids. Because if we think about this, when they often are having to switch schools and switch homes, if they have a core group that they talk to on online, as long as it's actually safe, right? That's actually really powerful and a huge protect, uh, protective factor for them. I think as foster parents, the risk that you guys are up against is more so this 40% because it has never been easier for kids in care to gain access to their bio family. It just hasn't been. If they want to find them or talk to them, they're going to. And that's just kind of a hard truth that I think foster parents have to accept right now is, yeah, if they want to find them, they will and they'll do it quickly and efficiently and they'll be able to talk and you might not know about it, which again is why we want to join in kinship and accept the children that you're parenting versus controlling them because then you might be able to have an open dialogue around it. Because um, teenagers get really honest with me in session and they will say stuff like, I know this is wrong. I know we're not supposed to, I'm not going to stop. And if someone tries to make me, I'm going to find other ways to do it, which kind of sounds like a threat. But to me, most of the time it's really genuine. You know, they're just telling the truth. They feel like they're doing it in a safe, controlled way, messaging back and forth with maybe birth mom. And at least then they don't have to go meet up with her and put themselves at risk. And in that sense, you know, it's, it's easier to understand where they're coming from. So there's just a lot to unpack with that. Here's a little bit more when, and this is from the same study that graphic is from. Oh, there we go. Um, you guys can kind of read through the bullet points and I will tell you my takeaway from them as you look at this. So with this first one, with the idea that there's explicit content exposure and cyberbullying and all of this, the idea is that PTSD can be evoked from social media. So you can actually garner post-traumatic stress from a lot of negative social media experiences. And I think that is very unique to this generation, right? And so I think it's just important to understand as adults, which it can be tricky if we didn't grow up in that. Like mine was more the age of MySpace. Um, but for those of us that did get a little bit of cyberbullying, it sucked. But I think most of us in this training were on our way out of that phase of life. So we might not totally understand the implications of cyberbullying and especially the reach of it now. And the bottom line is bullying is bullying and it's equally as traumatic online as it is in person. And I think that's one thing that a lot of adults were dismissing for a pretty extended period of time. So if you feel like you have a kid in your care that's really struggling with social media, partnering with them to figure out, okay, what's bullying? What's not? How do you feel about it? How can I help you with this? Instead of going to, well, I'm just going to take your phone because you can't handle it. Because if we had a child that was being bullied at school, we wouldn't just rip them out of school because they couldn't handle it. So just kind of reframing it for yourself that way. And then we have our second one, which is a good one, which is that a lot of our teens now, kind of like what Renee had mentioned, 
have taken active measures to do stuff like talk about their feelings and all that. So also what they do is they take active measures to cope and they reach out to people that they trust. They have a lot more resilience um, and they're kind of able to reduce their own long-term negative effects of risk exposure because no different than the bullying's right at their fingertips, the validation, the self-esteem builder, all the good things are right at their fingertips too. So fingers crossed your teens have a good friend in their life, even if it's not necessarily someone in your home that when someone's awful to them online, they can take a screen, grab forward it to their friend and have their friend hype them up, which is a lot of what we're seeing that kids are able to do now. Um, let's see. Okay. So then we look over at our actively coping with stressful situations um, and how that actually enhances the resilience, which is the part that I didn't really talk about, which is, you know, going with the above bullet point that I had you guys read independently they're able to cope with the risk sooner after they feel threatened, generally within a week. And then that builds their resilience and their ability to do it long-term. Because typically what I see is if something bad happens in person or online, kids are able to reach out to a support, they're able to feel a sense of connection and it works, they will continue to do that over and over again. So no different than bad behavior can loop, protective factors and good behavior can too. And I think that's really important to remember about social media. See, I feel like my first in instinct would be to take the phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But well, and I wonder too, Renee, does that come from a place of wanting, like feeling anxious yourself and wanting to protect totally. the kids? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And th I, that's why most parents do it. It's not because they're mean and they hate their kid's phone, which is <laughs> what I have to explain to kids a lot for parents. It's you get anxious and you get nervous and you can't imagine how somebody could talk to this person that you look at every day and be mean, especially when you think about our foster children and their narratives. Like a lot of the time our internal response is like, can the world just give them a break? right? Like can just kids be nice. So that's one thing we don't have to worry about. Um, but unfortunately teenagers don't take breaks. And a lot of the times our foster children aren't very open and honest about their circumstances or even that they're in care. So maybe there are kids that would be empathetic, but we're never going to find out. So that's why our reaction has to be, let's let them work this out. If a kid comes to you and they're being bullied, talk to them, work it out, put parameters around it, limitations, make sure they're not sleeping at night with their phone and then be like, okay, who makes you feel good online? Who do you talk to that really builds you up? Those types of things. Um, the earlier the coping behaviors can be detective on social media platforms, that's when we can really embed the effective interventions to support healthy coping processes. So this is where you guys come in. When you guys are able to really identify the coping behaviors that are pro-social that they use on social media platforms, take note and remind them of it every time. And that's where being in kinship with them pays off because it's like, oh, well, I'm sure this has happened to you before. Like before you lived with me, what would you do if people were mean to you online? Let them kind of steer their ship here and teach you about themselves. Oh, well, I used to call this friend, but I don't go to school with them anymore. That doesn't mean you can't call them call them. Do you want me to help you find their phone number? Stuff like that. And just detect what they, what works for them that is pro-social. So you can help them embed that so they can use that after they leave you. Um, Ooh, what do I think is the right age to start with phones and social media? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think this is one of those things where it's so kid dependent because I have met 11 and 12 year olds that are completely capable of 
you know, being with their phone. Renee, it sounds, says she would like to answer this question live. That means you. Oh, I, that means I want you to answer it live. Oh, got it. I thought it meant you had a thing to add. Well, <laughs> so um, my niece, for instance, she's 13, got her first phone. She gets it taken away often. Uh, <laughs> but I, again, I've met 11 year olds that don't and they use theirs really appropriately. So I think basing it more on the kid that's in front of you than just some abstract idea of a right age. A lot of the time, and please correct me if I'm wrong parents, but I'm noticing that a lot of foster children come into care with a smartphone. So it's really not up to you. Is that most people's experience with care with older kids? Because I've even known, so I'm in Weld County, but I know a lot of the time FCCs and caseworkers will give teenagers a smartphone so that they have one. Looks um, like I've got something. Someone said about half the time. Yeah, let, it, let me read this one for you. What if your child is calling relatives and just spot on spiraling? Because the phones don't have phone service right now because it was such an escalation point. So I feel mm -hmm. like I need to help them work into that contact, but I also don't want a child self-harming. Oh, yeah, of course you don't. I think working into that contact and making it feel like a collaborative discussion with the teen and being like, hey... I don't know if you've noticed, but I've noticed whenever you call a relative, you cry or your face turns red or 20 minutes after you want to do this and just kind of tell them what you're seeing and be really honest. Be like, I really want to help you with this. I don't want to take you away from your relatives, but I don't feel like I'm keeping you safe if we keep doing it the way we're doing it. So let's figure out a way that I can keep your heart safe and you can still talk to your relatives because this isn't working and see what their response might be. Because more often than not, I find teens are pretty shocked when they hear someone say like, I don't want to be in control of you. I don't want to take this from you. I don't know what to do, help me. That's really nice for a teenager to hear because again, they start to feel like the captain of their own ship. And sometimes it takes, literally why I have a job, sometimes it takes an outside person highlighting something really obvious to you for you to notice that's happening. I think for me, the big aha so far is how much you actually engage the teen or in, are encouraging us to engage the teen in their own healing and in the, I mean, I, I, I didn't foster a teen. So for me, it was, I'm taking control of this situation. I am keeping this child safe. I am making the decisions to make, keep this child safe. And it sounds like for parenting or fostering a teen, that's not the way to go. We need to engage them. Yeah, to, to their capacity at least, right? Because I mean, I have met some 12-year-olds that are functioning at a six-year-old level, both intellectually and emotionally. Parent them like they're six. You know, parent the kid in front of you. But more often than not, I do find that adolescents come in with a lot more maturity, a history of parentification. And when I say maturity, I, I throw that around loosely, but street smarts, I guess. would be Right. Well, that parentification way. for sure. Someone says, I've had siblings whose mom gave them phones and tablets at visitation so that mom could talk to them whenever they, she wanted. Very problematic. Someone else says, we found a lot who come in with a smartphone, but our home rule has been only to use it in family spaces. Um, someone said, oh, it's just blown up here in the chat. Um, I've had issues, but I don't take away the phone. Um, but like Cassandra said, they will find a way to communicate. And that's where that 
that protection orders that gets messy. Mm -hmm. Um, someone says we're laughing because our teen is onto us in all the verbiage. Like if I say that must be really hard to feel like I'm, you know, against you, how can I show you I'm for you? She'll say, Oh my gosh, mom, I know my therapist told you to say that. Do you guys, <laughs> do you guys remember that scene from instant family when they use that tool that they suggest and the, yeah. teen pre the teen pretends like she's totally falling for it. And then she's like, if you ever try to use that technique on me. The again. like five A's on me again. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, what, and what, <laughs> one more question quick, Cassandra, before you pop yeah. in. Um, when teaching kids to use smartphone appropriately, it's okay and should be expected for them to make mistakes. We plan for them to make a mistake. They may lose their phone for a limited time, but that's okay. And we explain that making mistakes is part of learning. They learn from it, then ask that, encourage them to not make the same mistake twice. That sounds like fantastic advice. Yeah, I love that. And I also really like the family spaces rule. So, you know, it's so problematic. I don't want to bypass that or dismiss it. It's hugely problematic when bio parents send kids with devices that are programmed to talk to them. I mean, I have a kiddo that I've worked with that at age seven was given a smartphone with Wi-Fi and tracking and a full camera roll of pictures of mom at visit. And then it's considered personal property and the foster parents couldn't take it. Um, didn't totally agree with the caseworker's decision on that one, but that's a training for another day. Um, but I also thought of the scene in Instant Family where the same teenage girl is like, you can't take my phone away from me. It's personal property. I came with it. So that's that's, just put in the chat that they've <laughs> had that happen and they say, my mom pays for this. You can't take it away. So maybe that is when we engage the caseworker, because I feel like a mm -hmm. lot of times the foster parents, we have to be the bad guy then, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe we do engage the GAL or the caseworker. Mm -hmm. That would be my exact suggestion. But also, I really liked that someone said the rule in our home when they come with smartphones is to use it in family spaces. Great. You can't be alone, trapped in your bedroom with a smartphone that I don't know where it came from. I don't know what's on it. I don't know if you're being tracked. I don't know who you're talking to. I need you in a family space. And then maybe age dependent, they can work up to having it in private spaces. You know, if this is a 16, 17 year old, they're going to have their phone in their room. And that's probably fine, especially because even if they are 16 at 17, they can age themselves out. So we also have to think about what parenting strategies in foster care does a disservice to this child if they age themselves out at 17. If they have never learned boundaries around their phone or suffered a natural consequence of staying on their phone till 3 a.m. and being late for school, how are they going to learn? And I know there's a lot of fear with foster parents of natural consequencing because you're worried it'll fall back on you. Most caseworkers really understand once we're in those high school years, like, hey, we're trying out a thing where they have to be accountable for their own choices. Most teen caseworkers are really on board with that. So please don't hear any of this as parenting out of fear either. But again, just parenting in partnership and with acceptance instead of control. Um, and then just the last part that's not a part of this study, I just wanted to touch on it because I wanted to make sure you guys knew that I knew, which is a lot of the time they're remaining in connection with maladaptive relationships and they have access to really maladaptive coping strategies. So just making sure you guys know, I hear you. And I'm not saying that social media is all good all the time. I just think it's way easier as adults for us to focus on the negative of it instead of the positives. Okay. 
So here are protective factors within social media that are largely specific just to this generation we're talking about um, and the upcoming generation and then some of the later millennials. So they feel like they have a sense of control. They have social supports and a perception of friendship. As weird as it is, social media is consistent. It's always there. They might have lived in six homes this year, but they've had the same Instagram handle since they were in sixth grade. And that feels really good. You know, just little things like that. Remaining in contact, which we just kind of went over, pros and cons there. Um, and then validation. The other thing that I really like about this generation, if you go find a team, look at their Instagram, they cheerlead each other so hard, especially the girls, which I feel like is so different from the way a lot of us grew up. Girls are so nice to their friends in the comment section, like compliments, emojis, all the things. And so a lot of the times teens can get validation for like physical self-esteem, but also they can DM back and forth with people that feel the way that they feel, you know, maybe they met each other in childcare to foster source training and now they DM on Instagram or whatever. So they feel a sense of being validated in who they are. And that's something that we're all striving for when we love these kids. Okay. I've said protective factor a lot, and I also want some time for all of us to talk to each other. Here's the definition of a protective factor, and I want you to just look over that, read it, and take a moment to consider protective factors for you as a teen. So we're not going to tell the teens that we, in fact, were teens once because they hate knowing that about us, but we can still remember and use that without saying it. So think about, you know, maybe you didn't have any protective factors when you were a teenager. What would have been a useful one for you? If you had protective factors in place and they didn't work well, let's think about why and just kind of engage with me here, guys, and tell me what you think about all of this. Use the chat bar, use the Q&A, just kind of break down what protective factors you remember from you being a teen or if you're more comfortable, if that's too vulnerable or transparent, and you would rather talk about a placement you've had or currently have, that's fine too. But I'm going to start monitoring, monitoring the chat and the Q&A a little bit while you guys kind of think about this and engage with each other. I think one really common protective factor, um, especially for teens, is um, putting other people down to build yourself up. Mm -hmm. um, and then as with teens, it can spiral, right? And then that person becomes the person to focus on. And that ultimately goes back to how we feel about ourselves. Um, we have a comment that I think is really um, helpful here. They were saying, you know, they had an instance where they had to, they, they, could, they knew that their child was going to fail, um, have, a, have a failure, and they had to let it happen. And they had so much anxiety about letting her fail. And I think that's so, so common. Um, but it's part of, it's part of growing up, but how do we let them fail when they've been through all of this trauma, right? Mm -hmm. How do we walk them through that a little bit more softly? Yeah. And I think that's where you lean on the protective factors they do have, not the more maladaptive ones, like 
you know, putting other people down to build themselves up, but the, the genuine ones that really work. And I think part of kind of softening that blow when they fail is an internal reminder that when you let them fail, you're showing them you believe they have the capacity to do it. When you protect them from everything around them and guard kids and shelter them, you're telling them you don't believe they can do it. If you are so anxious, you will not allow your teen or your child to be autonomous. The message they are subconsciously getting is you don't think they're capable and that will hurt them way more than being late for work. And I see too, Janet, you said you have a preteen who's not ready for a phone and I don't know when she will be. That's okay. Wait till you feel like she's ready. Might take a while. They don't have to have one. And if you can get around it, I love that for you. And I feel like if you know right now that she's not ready, just go with that. Yeah. Just go with that. May, you know, eventually your gut feeling around that may soften a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then you can explore it again. And you can start small too with other devices like tablets and see how she does if she has access to Wi-Fi on a tablet. And that might be a really good indicator if you even just have like kids YouTube and stuff with parental controls and kind of watch if she ever tries to get around it or, you know, that kind of thing. And if not, great. Could anyone come up with any protective factors they had as teens that you thought worked well? Can you give some examples? Because I obviously gave a negative one. So can you, <laughs> can you give us a positive example? Someone says resiliency. Yes, exercise too. Exercise. exercise and sports teams. Yes, sports are one of the best. Okay, let's see. My next slide has a list. Ta-da! Here's a bunch of our protective factors. Self-regulation, our ability to identify, regulate, and manage our emotions. Relational skills, the ability to connect with someone and talk to them. I am not confident I would have passed any math class ever in my life if it was not for my relational skills, but I got through graduate statistics by befriending my professor and making sure he knew I was not capable. Um, <laughs> somehow I'm still allowed to do my job, guys. So relational skills can get you a master's degree. Um, academic skills, which I didn't have in math, but I made up for in other areas. A positive school environment. So if your teen is in a school where they feel seen and heard and cared for, oh my goodness, does that make a world of difference? The presence of any caring adult. That's you guys, an adult that actually cares enough to spend their Saturday morning learning about how to connect with these kids. Even if they will never admit to you that you have changed something for them, one person that didn't have to care, showing them they care even when they come up with their yuckiest self is amazing. Support for independent living after age out, which is kind of what I talked about, where it is, you know, a disservice for our teens if we overly shelter them because they got to figure it out sometimes. So if you can work with them on cooking skills, cleaning, executive functioning, teaching them stuff about taxes, finances, all the things we don't but should learn in high school. How do we get an apartment? What's it like to pay rent? Those kind of things. Because even though they'll roll their eyes and it'll be boring, you're showing them that you believe they can live on their own in the near future. Because if you didn't think they could handle it, you wouldn't be talking to them about it. Um, I know we've got the chat blowing up, so I'm going to go through these and then I'll hop back on the chat. Groups of any kind, therapy groups, support groups, um, group of kids that go rollerblading, I don't care, whatever it is, a group where they have a common interest in mind, even if they're not friends outside of that group, just coming together in like a mini microcosm of community is amazing. 
friendships, any mentors you can get them. Um, siblings can actually be a really big protective factor, foster or bio, just someone that understands their upbringing. You know, in that one home where we can only have bones and family spaces, if two teenagers get to complain about how dumb they think that rule is, that's a protective factor. They have someone else to go to. Um, sports or extracurriculars, that's one of my favorites. That keeps kids out of a world of trouble a lot of the time. Um, and creative outlets. So I will pop back over to our chat, maybe. Oh, just kidding. The, Renee, chat, the chat has a lot of what you've got listed on your screen there. Dance groups, um, playing an instrument, caring adults, music, journaling, okay. that type of thing. Okay, great. I won't pop yep. over. Yep. So here's our next one, my hard pills to swallow slide. No one ever loves this slide. Um, actually, by the way, guys, this is a Foster Source original training. I put this one just together for yeah. you guys. <laughs> but, let, me say, let me say one more protective factor. Sure. Um, an important protective factor, someone says, for me as a teen was watching slash reading sci-fi um, like Star mm. Trek. As a result, I watched sci-fi movies with kids, then use the storyline to talk about relationships and how it relates to their current situation. It's helpful to talk about bullying, mistreatment by an alien race. If that's easier, and then describe directly describing what may be happening to the kid, and they're smart enough then to make the association. Oh yeah, I love that. That is a beautiful example of a unique protective factor. Love that. So here we go. Your teen may have more life experience than you, or at a minimum, they have different life experience than you. The reason I think that's a really hard pill to swallow is because as adults and parents, it can be really weird when we sit across the dinner table from a 14 year old that's seen more stuff than we have. But if we don't acknowledge it and we pretend that we know what they've gone through, we're going to hurt each other. It's dysregulating to your own system to imposter that way. And it's dysregulating to theirs because they know you can't actually relate. And if they do believe for a second, you can actually relate. And then they find out that that was not real that's worse. So I think learning to acknowledge and honor these kids for who they are and what they've been through and what they've dealt with and seen is really, really important, even if it's kind of a blow to our ego. Respect is earned. Um, I think I explained this one best anecdotally. I remember one of my first internships in my master's program was at a school. Um, and so I was in an AM classroom, so an effective needs classroom in a school district that shall not be named. Um, and I got some really weird directives from admin. I didn't have an on-site supervisor, so I was just, I basically served as their school social worker. Was not ready to, by the way. Um, but the principal really wanted me to kind of like aid with the AP and a lot of disciplinary stuff. And I learned really, really fast that I had no business telling these kids what to do or not to do. And it was just going to get explosive if they did not first have a sense of mutual respect. So for you to expect your team to respect you, you have to find ways to show them you respect them. This whole business of like, I'm the adult, you're the child, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't really work in general, but especially not with foster teens because adults have failed them countless times. So you being an adult is meaningless. The adults that were put on this earth and to protect them didn't. So your age cannot be a precursor to how much respect you get. It just won't work. Um, and then a power struggle is a compliment. 
I know it doesn't feel like it. I have a two-year-old, so my life is a power struggle right now. But if they did not recognize you had power, they wouldn't struggle with it. It is the most rudimentary form you can get, rudimentary form of respect you can get from a teenager to have them power struggle with you because teens that don't respect you and don't recognize you have authority just blatantly won't listen and won't care. So if they're engaging with you in the push and pull and the arguments and the rebellion, they're at least acknowledging that you have authority. Okay. Did anyone have any thoughts or questions on our hard pills to swallow? I know that slide can kind of, for some of you, it's like, yeah, duh. And for others of you, it, it kind of stings for a minute. Did you see what our Lindsay wrote? Um, she says, mm -hmm. I was a teen in care. I absolutely hate it when any adult told me they understood what I was going through. Nothing could make me shut down faster. Oh, I bet. And thank you for sharing that with us too. I think it's really helpful for us to hear it from someone that's been there. I'm having a weird thing with my chat bar where it only pops up ever so often and then no it worries. has a delay and then it'll pull. Um, let's see. I just got one now. Yeah. I may know how I felt basically, but I definitely don't know how you felt. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Even awesome. with similar experiences, the levels are so different and it's, that is so true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think too, when you have experiences like Lindsay and Kat, it's okay to share those. If you ask your teen first, like, Hey, I, do you want to learn a little bit about me? Like I have an upbringing kind of like yours. I'm not saying I get it. I can't imagine what you've gone through. You can't imagine what I have, but if you want to hear someone else's story, I'd love to. A healthy response to a teen that says respect goes both ways is yeah, I agree. Because here's the thing is teens conveniently use that, but fail to recognize that they are just as capable as we are of initiating respect. Once you are at a level of functioning where you can say something like that, you're at a level where you can offer the respect for. So it's totally fine for you to say, yeah, I agree. Here's what you can all, well, let me flip that. Say, yeah, I agree. What can I do to respect you more? And if I do that, here's what I need from you and kind of make it more negotiable. And then if you really have to, Kathleen, lay the hammer down, you can point out like, you know, you might not like this and I can't control this about you, but this is my house. And so I need this basic bare minimum stuff from human to human. Um, but I find most of the times teens are really taken aback when they say, cause they've said it to me too, like respect goes both ways. And I'll say, yeah, I agree. What have I done to disrespect you? They can't, they don't have anything for me. I mean, they might have something for you. I see them an hour a week. I've got it way easier. Um, but typically teens are caught really off guard by collaborative discussions. And I kind of jumped over that idea of a lot of teenagers kind of knowing exactly what we're doing. Like, don't you ever use those five A's on me again? It's okay to say, yeah, your therapist did tell me to talk like that. Is it working? You know, <laughs> just show some humility and some humanness. Like, yeah, your therapist did tell me to do that. And I'm working so hard to parent you that I'm soaking up anything that she'll tell me. Or yeah, I am trying it this way because I just, I want to make you feel safe here. I know it probably sounds corny, but like I'm learning with you and just get really honest with them. Kids, teens, humans respond really well to transparency and honesty, including with that respect piece. 
And it's not going to be perfect, guys. Just because you repeat something I suggest in here, it's going to take a few times for it to really sink in with them. Their outward presentation typically is not aligned with how they actually feel. So they might be presenting with you like, ugh, so annoying. But internally, you just made them feel really good. They're just not going to admit that to you. There we go. Okay. I love Dr. Shafali so much. And she writes the book, Conscious Parenting. She does a lot of Oprah's Super Soul Saturdays. Um, her first name is Shafali. Um, and that's what she goes by on all of her stuff. So I have that written up here on the side. If you want to copy it down, hands down, million times over my favorite parenting book. The tricky part, I will warn you, it's definitely more attuned to your typical biological family, not foster or adoptive. But just her general framework and way of seeing things, I really enjoy. So she has six, six keys to connectedness for conscious parenting with teens. Um, let's see. I got to pop up. Okay, there we go. So moving from the center stage to the backstage, this is where we release the control. I know you don't think you have any. I get that. I know that it feels like you don't have any control, but when you really present with your kid that you're accepting them and you're pushing them to the front and you want to let them shine and you're being more of a supporting cast member instead of the leader, that can really, really help. Don't take it personally. If I picked one key to connection for this training, it would be that. We have to release the ego. Ultimately, you're trying to provide a template for reparenting when you enter into a child's life at this stage. And reparenting is the term we use for attaching them to themselves. You are modeling to them and showing them what healthy and safe adults do and look like, even if they won't engage with you as one. And when they act out towards you, that goes back to our first part that we're kind of backfilling, which is just kind of this idea that you are seeing what happened in their early years play out in their teen years. So the way they act out towards you isn't actually intended for you. These repairs aren't yours to heal, but you have to heal them anyway. So getting out of that emotional whirlwind, dropping the anxiety, knowing you might be a punching bag, but it's not your fault. You didn't plant those seeds. Okay. And then empathizing with their confusion. How awkward and weird is being a teenager? right? And just, you know, with your kiddo that says stuff like, I don't know all the time, just thinking about, okay, I'm sure there's the majority of things he says, I don't know too. He probably knows, but how is he making you feel when he says that? Probably really stuck. Probably like you don't know either. Probably like you don't have any of the answers and neither does he. So empathizing with those feelings of confusion instead of rising with the intensity of his stonewalling. Give them their space. I know that one's not super fun. Um, but part of giving them their space too is reducing our criticism. End the power struggle, which we were kind of just talking about on past slides, but allow them to stumble. That's part of how we leave the power struggle. If they think they know everything, give them a shot if it's safe. Connect to the feeling beneath, which is where we're really getting to, which is where we stop getting hooked on all this surface level stuff. And then there's this idea too. So Dr. Shefali is quite spiritual. You can look at it from kind of like a hippie woo-woo lens or from a physics standpoint, because both concepts kind of mesh. So whatever feels more true for you. Um, 
but there's this idea that interactions can be mindlet or heartlet, which from a more scientific standpoint is, are you functioning from your cognitive functioning or are you using your central nervous system's regulation to dictate how to engage? Right? So whichever one you want to use. For me, it's shorter to say mindlet or heartlet. So we're going to roll with that for just a minute. But a lot of the times we get stuck in our mind and stuck in our head and all those types of things. And that feels like where we should be with teens, but instead go into the heart. If your nervous system is really dysregulated and you're, and you're up in your hurt, connect with that feeling in you because they are setting you up to feel how they feel. If you are feeling really dysregulated and hurt and all those things, make sure they know that's how you're feeling. Go take care of yourself. Show them that safe adults go take care of themselves and meet their own emotional needs and then re-engage. I think that's so important, Cassandra, because sometimes we feel like we're supposed to have it all together, right? Because mm -hmm. we're mirroring for them what regulation looks like and what uh, functional adulting looks like. But... Mm -hmm regulation and functional adulting looks like recognizing when you're not regulated yeah. and when you need to go work on that. Yeah. And I mean, when we think about ourselves, whether it be work and personal life, I learn way more from watching people screw up and make a mistake. I learn way more when I screw up and make a mistake. I learn way more when somebody watching somebody make a repair with me than from watching someone do something perfectly. So sure, you could be a perfect parent and stay regulated and use your brain all the time, but that's boring and they won't learn that much from it. So there is your free ticket to be human. You are going to teach them way more by getting dysregulated and calming yourself down and taking care of your own needs than what they would learn if you just had it all together. People can't really connect or feel attuned to people that have it all together because no one actually does. So this one says, what were you like as a teenager? I don't need you guys to respond. I don't need a Q and A. I don't need a chat. I just want you to really think about when you took center stage in your own life as a teen and your parents and family system kind of became more of that supporting cast. What was it like? Who were you? What was that like for you? And just sit on that for just a second for me. And then we're going to talk about the setup. If anyone wants to use the chat or Q&A to share, you're more than welcome to. I just don't want anyone to feel like they had to. Oh, too soon. Okay. So with this idea of who you were, the idea of the setup is in any relationship, parent-child, child-to-child, within siblings, within friends, anywhere. The other person sets us up to feel the way that they are feeling. Super simple concept, not at all an easy one. So Lisa Dion actually coined it the setup. She created synergetic play therapy, which I'm trained in. Love synergetic play, by the way, you guys. You can feel free to research it, kind of look into Lisa. It was founded in Boulder, which is super cool. And now it's like a worldwide evidence-based intervention. But my favorite thing about my training and I did like a six month intensive on it was this basic initial concept, which is the setup. And it is the idea of what I already touched on that they are setting us up to feel the way that they feel. So when you really look beneath a lot of your initial emotionally charged reactions, you're going to find something's totally different than what you present with. So, you know, there's this one example that's used often in the training of the setup where there's a couple 
the woman gets offered a work opportunity for three months where she has to leave. So she does. And she comes home and her husband's not really excited to see her. They don't do anything special when she first gets home. Like she's back from three months and it's like she just clocked in and clocked out from nine to five. So her initial reaction is to be angry um, and to kind of throw that in his face and obviously be hurt, but really be like frustrated. And then she looks beneath that initial like blow to the ego, the hurt, the not feeling special, the frustrated, the anger and went, okay, what's down here? I feel rejected. I feel abandoned. I feel like I don't matter. If your spouse left you for three months for work and didn't really talk to you about it before and they didn't have to go, you might feel rejected, hurt, and abandoned too. And I see this with younger kids in play a lot. And it kind of stops them dead in their tracks because they'll do something like only want to win the game or talk over me when I'm talking or whatever it might be. And initially I, I want to, even as someone that's training on this, be like, okay, I'm the grown up here and you need to respect me. And I was talking and get your art therapy project done. But instead I usually go, hmm, my stomach just got kind of heavy because it seems like you want to listen to me. And I thought we were friends and friends listened to each other. So I just feel stuck and sad and like, it's not safe for me to talk because I won't be heard. Every single kid that I've ever done that with stops exactly what they're doing and listens to me so well because I just nailed what they are feeling somewhere else in their life. And then later in the session, we talk about where have you felt that before? Not heard, sad, feeling like it's not safe to talk. And sometimes it's just from coming from a loud family with that example. You know, there's all these different avenues, but for you as people that are parenting teens, instead of immediately trying to be authoritarian and come at them and engage and assert power and demand respect and all these things, if you are feeling like you are constantly up against a wall and you're trapped and you're stuck and no one's listening and you don't have a say in your own home and, oh, wait, that's exactly what it would be like to be a foster teen. So acknowledging that feeling and then where we pull it all together with what we were just talking about is then go self-regulate. Tell them how that felt, what you're feeling on the inside, that your initial reaction is to try to gain control, but you're not going to go do that. You're going to take a minute. Whoa. How powerful would that have been for any of us at 15, 16, when we really made our parents angry if they went, you know what? I'm really angry at you right now. I want to punish you. I need to go get myself in check first because I'm feeling like you don't care about me because you're behaving this way and that you don't listen to me and I don't feel heard. That's like the big long therapy equivalent of I'm disappointed in you, right? So just kind of considering the setup, this is again, simple, but not easy. So do we have any questions about the setup? Not seeing anything pop up. So I'm going to go to the next one. Let's practice. Okay. This is all about regulating yourself so you can co-regulate with them. It's not as surface level as we want it to be. And it certainly doesn't come without inner work. So this is where I do my shameless plug to get into therapy. If you're not already, everyone needs to go to therapy. Um, but here's some examples, just a varying intensity that can happen when you're parenting teens. You get a door slammed in your face, they're yelling at you, the teen is compliant but won't engage. See, I told you we'd get there <laughs> eventually. Um, the I don't knows, um, the teen's a runner, the teen self-harms. 
your initial reaction to a lot of these is going to be to punish or to save. So if you are a rescuer, that is something to know about yourself. It's another term for it could be fawning, being a fawn or a people pleaser. All of those traits tend to go together. Do your inner work there. If you are somebody that when you get anxious immediately tries to get control, that's your inner work. What questions or thoughts do we have about the setup and responding to these and looking at feelings underneath? Nothing? Yeah, hang tight here. Um, one of my team's teens has old self-harm scars and her health para at school said, oh, sweetie, we don't self-harm. And that was the wrong thing to say. <laughs> my teen was so mad. I can only imagine. How, can you talk about that for a minute? How, and I think we're all dealing with this right now, how to get others who daily interact with your teen to better understand what we're trying to learn. And also someone says, so what do we say in the setup in each of those examples? Can you go through that? Yeah, totally. So we'll start with the question about schools. I think Renee, you could probably give a bio on how to do this better than I could advocating for your kiddo at school. Um, ultimately, I see that as more of a meso level issue, meaning we need more training in our school systems to be actually trauma informed. It was a really big buzzword for a while. I've been to some of the trainings and was a participant in some, even with that internship years ago I shared about, which was kind of like the, the onset of the trauma informed buzzword word. And I haven't heard many things in school-based training that are actually trauma-informed, which is really disappointing. Um, but also I really feel for educators because they didn't go to school for that. That wasn't supposed to be their job. So I think supporting your teen and going, okay, who are your safe people at school? Who are not? Let's tune out the people that are not your safe people. We don't need to worry about their opinion. And then you as the parent and the teen work with staff members they have identified to be helpful and really use your resources within the school too. When I talk about people not being trauma-informed in the school system, I'm not talking about the school's counselors and the school social workers. Typically, they're wonderful. I know we have Rachel in here today who's a school social worker in Greeley, um, and she's amazing at trauma-informed staff and is somebody that can support that way. So if you were to take you know, a foster parent slash school social worker, like like Rachel and connect your team with them. Wonderful. Right. So just kind of making sure that you support them and identifying their safe places, educating the safe place and going from there. Cassandra also, before you go through that on the setup, someone says, I feel like I really try to do this last week. I told my teen that sometimes life feels really overwhelming for me. And that's why dad keeps stepping in and helping me knowing that she feels really overwhelmed and that she has a lot of trouble just handling daily life. She started mocking me and has since used it as an opportunity when I'm having a hard time and mockingly saying, oh, life is so hard. You just can't handle anything. Um, how to bridge the gap in trusting her with my quote unquote hard and wanting to connect while still maintaining healthy boundaries. Great question. Such a great question. So we call this something called the trust check method, which is where you do exactly what you did and then you see how they use it. So she is obviously not a team that can use it well, but also don't be afraid to call her on it and not from a point of reactivity and emotion and sadness, but just go, Hey, that's kind of gross that I shared something with you and you're using it against me. Please don't. 
because she wants a reaction. She wants that engagement from you. And I think maybe what that teen heard was I'm too difficult and I'm making your life hard. So maybe making a correction there too, not that you said anything wrong, but teens and children in general are narcissistic little beings and they take things on that are not theirs to carry. So maybe explaining like, Hey, by the way, when I said stuff was overwhelming for me, here's what I'm up against. That doesn't have anything to do with you. Like, just so you know, but you get to be the gauge of what feels safe for you. So you can either just cut it off or kind of approach around it and be like, Hey, that feels kind of gross. Maybe you don't understand what I meant by overwhelmed. Do you want me to explain to you what I'm dealing with? Because I'm not sure why you're using that against me. And on it, not that we're trying to make the teen feel small, but in my experience, foster children are really empathetic. And when they realize that they're being abusive reactively, they typically correct, not in that moment. They wait because they don't want it to be your idea, but they will self-correct. Okay. And then for the, the example, so a door is slammed in your face. That was probably jarring. It was probably shocking. Um, it probably felt abrupt and curt, maybe scary, maybe aggressive. So then you look at it and you reflect and you go, okay, did I approach them in an aggressive way? Were they not expecting me coming? You know, was I too abrupt? Those types of things. But then also going where else in their life were they experienced this? Quick changes, quick transitions, minimal say, just getting cut off right? That's something they're probably experiencing, whether it be in visits or at school or all these other places. Also, if you get a door slammed in your face, that typically means you're following someone that's already dysregulated and angry around. Don't do that. If somebody is angry and they try to walk away, that is pro-social and that is a healthy way to calm down. It might not be polite, but it's healthy. So if you have someone that needs to take a break, let them take the break. Okay. The important part is just putting boundaries once they calm back down around coming back and having the conversation again. They yell at you. Yelling is a hard one. And I think the first step is going, what is your barometer for yelling? What is your window of tolerance for yelling? Because my version of yelling is very different than my husband's version of yelling, right? He's a big, loud dude. So what I might perceive as yelling in a conversation is him mildly raising his voice. And so kind of thinking about, is that something you're already sensitive to? And just kind of keeping that in the back of your mind. But a lot of the times when we get yelled at, we feel really attacked. So just thinking about that, my team feels attacked right now. And then how do we meet that with empathy? How do we create a safe space? The team is compliant, but will not engage. That is typically a defense mechanism and a way to keep themselves safe. So if we look internally, when somebody is not doing anything wrong, but they won't let us in, we feel alone, rejected, and confused. They're feeling alone, rejected, and confused. So instead of focusing on your reaction to it, how can I make them feel more a part of the family system? How can I make them feel like they have a partnership in something? How can I help them to better understand the world around them? The teen is a runner. Don't chase them. Start there. When somebody runs, it makes you feel abandoned and confused and scared. So if they come back to you, how can you make it feel like they have a home? How can you make them feel safe? 
how can you make the world easier to understand? And that goes back to that empathizing with confusion on those two, right? Self-harming is tricky. Get a therapist involved when it gets to the self-harm. I mean, all of these, let's just everyone should be in therapy, right? But with self-harming, making sure you have some additional support there, reminding yourself that self-harm is a way of a team trying to get connection and attention. It is not typically suicidal. And I think that's something that when you see self-harming, especially if you've never seen it in person before, it is terrifying. And you, you immediately go to that place of, will they, will they kill themselves? So just kind of, you know, safety planning, getting a professional involved, reminding yourself it's not suicidal, but then go into that inner feeling. That's scary. It provokes a lot of anxiety and it demands your attention. You feel like you have to put everything right there. And so that to me typically signals a team needs all that attention because they feel like they have all the anxious pressure in the world on them too. Does that help with those examples? Yes, for sure. Okay. Okay. So here's my fun little bit since you asked slide. And what I mean by but since you asked what specific things that don't include in our work can we do to connect with teenagers, right? Set aside time for them, even if they don't use it. I have a lot of foster parents of teens that have done stuff like basically have office hours for each teen, where it's like every day, if you need me for this 15 minute window, I will be unoccupied and free and available. Even if they never use it, if they see you sitting in the same spot every day, being busy with nothing for 15 minutes, they know you're there. They know you're consistent. That will ease a lot of the fears. So just having that kind of like office hour idea. Um, and if they don't use it, use it as a way to get quiet and sit with yourself. No TV, no phone, guilt-free because you're doing it for a kid. And just really learn to sit and center. And if it's really hard for you to be unoccupied for 15 minutes, there's your sign you need it, right? Cooking, because again, that teaches them that you are fostering their independence for when they move out. Um, and then also it's just a great way to connect, a great way to be together. When we eat, we release dopamine. Everyone's happy. Yay. Same with exercising. Maybe if they like walking, they like doing yoga, whatever. The key to these two though is joining things they already do, not trying to force them into a new activity unless they've expressed interest in it. Um, play games, go for a drive, especially if they're working on driving, learner's permit kind of stuff, showing them you believe they can do hard things, all of that keeps coming back up. Listen to their music. I know it may hurt your ears. I know it may be jarring with WAP out now and who knows what else. <laughs> it's a lot to have to listen to your foster teen's music. Do it. It's three minutes. It means a lot to them. Don't talk during the song. Listen to the lyrics. Think about what maybe they're trying to tell you ask them to teach you something. That's my favorite one. I don't encourage being disingenuous, but sometimes there'll be like subject matters I don't fully know, but I have more of a sense of than I let on. If I let any kid, but especially a teenager, feel like they're teaching me something, they feel so good about themselves, you guys. Okay, here's our bottom line. Wade before you swim. This is unlike anything else in foster care. Do not jump in head on trying to love them and hug them and buy matching pajamas. It won't work. 
listen to the small things because they're big for them. The things that seem so tiny to us as adults were so big when we were 16 and it's so easy to lose sight of that. You know, that feeling when you get like a first serious relationship and you're convinced you're going to be the high school sweethearts that actually get married and it feels like a big deal. Now we're adults and we're the ones going, we know that won't last. Let it be big for them, especially with foster teens. If there is anything normal they can cling to, let's let them have it. Assume nothing. You think you know, you don't know. Even if you did know, once they know you know, you know nothing. So let them teach you, let them come to you, have open dialogue and connection. Know this isn't about you in the best way. If we are people that are predispositioned to anxiety or depression or have our own trauma histories, when people act out towards us, we assume it's our fault and we did something wrong. This, a lot of this can't be your fault, you guys. There's things that you can tweak to parent better, but when you're the foster parent of a teen, you can't take ownership for a lot of this stuff. It was already there. All right. And then let's connect. Any questions you have, anything you want to talk about, let me know. Um, that's my cell phone number. You can call it. You can text it. My email address, my website. And then I actually have an Instagram and I absolutely do not have a Facebook because I'm trying to get my teenagers to like me more. So there we go. <laughs> I love it. Um, all right. Lindsay's popped back on there. He's going to show everybody how to get their certificates. You can definitely still keep um, submitting questions, guys. Sorry, I'm gonna let Sandra slide hang out for another couple of seconds to make sure everybody gets that if they want it. I worry about bad cycles getting started and snowballing. Can you tell me more, Rachel? Maybe can't tell me more. That's okay. Um, I hear you. I guess my biggest suggestion would be to manage your own anxiety um, and your own feelings on stuff like that as far as stuff snowballing because, I mean, it's, it's just one of those things where if they're going to perpetuate a bad cycle, they're going to, and all you can do is give them the tools not to and hope for the best. And I know that's the really hard part of accepting and not controlling. Um, on the setup, I feel like I, oh, okay. I already got that one. Just kidding. So I think I unmuted you. If you want to talk, you can, you don't have to. Can, can you hear me? Yep. Hi all. Um, Hi. Mine's a preteen and uh, I just worry that once he gets into his teen years, you know, one bad thing will happen and, you know, his self-esteem will, will plummet and then his reactions will continue to show in negative ways that become self-destructive. I guess the biggest thing I would say right now, Rachel, is let's not borrow trouble. If he's not there yet, don't take yourself there now. 
Right. And, and I, I'm hard, not, hard not to, but yeah, like, that's yeah. good advice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess you're right. It's so hard not to, but be, you're probably right. That's probably going to happen to a degree, but the fact that you already care about it and are attuned to it and are watching for it gives me the confidence that you will intercept it when it does happen. You're going to provide the appropriate support and just making sure that in the interim, managing your own anxiety around it and knowing that as hard as it is for us as parents, we can't swoop in and solve that. You know, we can't control what happens outside of our homes. All we can do is make sure that our home is the safe haven for them to get back to after it does happen. But know that that is a common, common anxiety. I mean, my son is seven. If you knew how much time I spent worrying about whether or not he's going to be a functional adult. I mean, yeah, crazy. <laughs> and I think that's every parent, not just foster. We all wish that we could just bubble wrap our kids and no one would ever be mean to them. And then if someone was mean, we wish we could just go like, you know, shake that child. But then also we know that's not okay. So <laughs> I'm not saying we don't all go through it. I just am saying if you can spare yourself the mental space until it does happen, it'll be a much safer place to live in your head. Cassandra, yeah. What's the best advice for the first week a new teen is in your home to connect slash set it up well from the start? Someone says, I screwed this up in the past and I felt like there was no coming back from it. I think set the absolutely necessary boundaries. So just around like safety, the really basics, like don't leave without telling anyone. No, you may not take our cars, you know, (laughs) whatever you feel like the basic basics are for safety and then spend time giving them space when they want it, setting up those office hours where you have time for them to come connect with you. And then just really looking at it like you're like a fun aunt as much as possible for the first week so you can get that initial connection so they actually want to listen to you. And I think this might be one of the things too where you guys can help each other more than I can help um, as far as like little tips and tricks for teens. I think Kat, what Kat says is really good. Um, I learned that the hard way. Easier to set rules and then ease them than to not set and have to set. But I feel like, there, or she says boundaries, not rules. Mm-hmm. But I feel yes. like there's a balance, right? Because I feel like if you go in and there's 50 rules, that's probably going to look at Lindsay. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> Tell us, Lindsay, do you mind kind of what, what? worked best for you as far as how a home was set up when you were a teen? Um, so out of all the homes I was in, my last home probably worked the best. And it was that they accepted me as an angry teen. Um, you know, they, they had their rules, they had their boundaries, but they didn't try to bombard me. Um, Terrible example, but I was a smoker as a teen. Every home I went to said, nope, you can't smoke. You're not allowed to smoke. And this last home, they were like, you know what? We smoke. We get it. We know we can't tell you not to. And for me, I was just like, oh, wait, what? It caught me so off guard that that was the first thing everybody else tried to change. And they were just like, you know what? We get it. I was like, oh, okay, I I might can deal with you. And that really kind of set the tone for our relationship. Again, terrible example, smoking, but I mean, 
I don't think that's a terrible example. Lindsay. No, big picture example. here. Big picture. Let's choose our battles, right? That was my coping mechanism. Right. And right. I think asking too, like, I wonder what it would have been like for you at the other homes had they said like, hey, Lindsay, you can give us one non-negotiable or one rule of the five we're about to list that you can break, but only one. Which one is it? And you probably would have picked smoking every time. Oh, totally. And I guess to me, if I had a teen coming over to smoke, do I want them to smoke? No. I mean, back then it would have not even been like the clean smoking. You actually would have needed an ashtray. But hey, give them a smoker's patio and tell them to, you know, take off whatever hoodie they wear outside to smoke if you hate the smell. But be realistic about who you're getting, how old they are, and what you can realistically implement. Because bottom line, what we know from top down in our society, when we put rules in place, people are going to break them. So we need to decide what rules we can use to keep people safe. You know, that's the case for everything, even just for us on a national level, is accepting that some things people are just going to do. So we need to decriminalize them or legalize them to keep them safer. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, Cassandra, this might be a whole other uh, training, but some, someone says, I try to underreact to the topic of sex with the girls. Do you find teen girls think differently about sex these days? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> I think it's more accessible. Um, not like the active sex, but information about it. And porn addiction on average starts at the age of nine in our country. So kids are really flooded with pornographic images, which I think is a training in and of itself, right? Just the idea of porn and porn addiction. So I think um, really honest and open conversations about sex and sexuality. And I think one of the big mistakes we all used to make is teaching girls that sex is just for making babies because boys aren't taught that. Nope. So making sure that there are conversations around safe sex for the purpose of pleasure, not just pretending that kids are not going to do it because it's just not true. And then also giving them real realistic views where possible around sex because chances are they've watched porn. Oy, oy, oy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. Sorry, guys. That, um, that should be on the hard pill to swallow slide. They probably watch porn. <laughs> so we are hearing that people would like a training. Um, about talking to kids in care about sex and sexuality. So maybe we can explore that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm hearing, and I'm not taking it personally at all from, you know, we, we have our college interns whom we just absolutely adore. We have three right now from Metro and three from CSU and I'm getting lots of, I want to be Cassandra's best friend type messages. Um, <laughs> I want best friends. <laughs> but, um, Devin, one of our interns said something I thought that was really important. Going back to when we're um, worrying now about things that aren't even happening, but could happen in the future. And mm -hmm. she said something she uses is pairing all of her what if thoughts with what if not. Someone knows cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think also anchoring thoughts, which you're kind of touching on. Um, is just the idea of, okay, what makes you kind of fly away with anxiety and what pulls you back down and anchoring those really scary thoughts to um, more positive, not even positive, but more grounded ones. Have a good one. Someone All right. <laughs> okay. All right, guys, this has been so helpful, Cassandra. Thank you so much.